Every human being is related to God in some way, um, either, as I've said, in Adam or in Christ, either under wrath or under grace. But both of those are relationships. If there were neutrality, there would be a place in the middle. All truth is God's truth. Mm -hmm. So if it's true, it's God's. If they've got it, then they've taken it from us. And that's what Van Til is saying. Mm -hmm. Don't ever think that someone who's an unbeliever is living in any kind of consistent way. Everything that they're doing is dependent on who God is. Really what Van Til's getting at is if you don't believe in Christianity as true, you can't believe in, you can't have true knowledge of anything else. That's right. Yeah, the only can. true knowledge exists in Christianity, that right. in, in, the, in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Welcome to The Afterword, a conversation on books, reading, and the church, a podcast from Westminster Bookstore. I'm your host, Johnny Gibson, and I'm joined again by uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant, Professor of Apologetics and Systematics here at Westminster Theological Seminary, and uh, we're discussing Cornelius Van Til and his thought. We, in episode one, looked at Van Til, the person, the man. Uh, the second episode, we looked at his books and discussed some of his writings, and now we're going to go deeper still into actual comments that he made, <coughs> statements that he said, and what they actually mean. So, Scott, what I'm going to do in this episode is I'm going to read out parts of some of his writings. Okay. I'm going to give some of his sort of eccentric illustrations, mm -hmm. and I want you to tell us what they mean. So, uh, let's begin with a comment in Why I Believe in God. Uh and you said in the previous episode, he says a lot of these things in all of his books. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting some of these from why I believe in God, but he says similar things elsewhere. Uh, he says, to be without bias is only to have a particular kind of bias. The idea of neutrality is simply a colorless suit that covers a negative attitude toward God. Right. What's he mean? Well, again, he's, uh, he's helping us remember um, his... One of his primary points here is something that every Christian ought to be able to enthusiastically endorse, and that is that Christianity is true. Um, if you don't believe that and you're a Christian, then there's a disconnect somewhere. Um, you need some pastoral help. Um, if you're a Christian, you've said to yourself, Christianity is true, which, which means not just that it's true in my brain. It's not just a true set of propositions that I have in my mind. It means it's actually the way the world is. What Christianity says to us, God in his word and in his world, is that this is the way the world is. Um, God is who he says he is. He did create the world. He's sovereign over it. We are his creatures. Uh, if that's the case, then that means that every human being, let's just stay there, every human being is related to God in some way. Um, either as I've said, in Adam or in Christ, either under wrath or under grace. But both of those are relationships. If there were neutrality, there would be a place in the middle to be. Not wrath, not grace, but just this. And Van Til keeps trying to tell us over and over again, there is no just this. A person who's made in the image of God knows God and suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. If they remain in Adam, that is their life story. And everything that they do is meant to be understood, according as Calvin put it, to those spectacles. You see people through the spectacles of what Scripture 
teaches. So nobody's just sort of uh, tripping through life in a neutral way. Oh, I wonder what the world's like. I wonder what people think about. I wonder. They might do that on the surface, but God's word gives us insight into the psyche that we would never have otherwise of individuals who are in Adam, which all of us were. And that is that we are people who suppress the truth that God gives. And that means that we have by virtue of being image of God, God's existence, under the wrath of God, we have a built-in bias against God until and unless we're converted to Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. So if that doesn't happen, everyone walking the face of the earth, no matter what they say to you, has a bias against the true God whom they know. And you need to interpret what's being said according to that bias in order to understand it properly. If God didn't make himself known to people, then according to Paul's logic in Romans 1, people would have an excuse. I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bertrand Russell's famous statement, what are you going to do, Lord Russell, if you die and you're wrong and there's God, what are you going to say? Russell said, I will say to him, not enough evidence. Mm. Well, no, he wouldn't. Uh, because the evidence was abundant. It was in Russell. It was outside. It was everything. As Calvin says, the minute he opens his eyes, he's compelled to see God. Mm. Uh, and, and, and the reason Russell rejected God uh, was not because he wasn't smart enough to get it. It was an ethical problem. He had a bias against God. And he was, as Jesus says when he weeps over Jerusalem, he was unwilling he was unwilling, and that unwillingness had to do with his suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. Mm. So that's what Van Til's trying to get us to, mm. to, to recognize. There's no person out there who's just sort of walking around in neutral fashion. And so if we were to ask Van Til, does God believe in atheists, he would say, of course he doesn't. Right. There's no such thing as an atheist. Could not be. God has ensured that his creatures will know him because they're made in his image. Yeah. Uh, so atheism is a cover, like all other religions, all other false views, is a cover mm-hmm. for what they actually know to be the case. I often say that atheism only gets its definition by sticking an A on the front of theism. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, right. Van Til has this lovely illustration of uh, an atheist is like a little girl who wants to slap her father in the yeah. face, but he has to climb up <clears throat> onto his lap to do so. That's right. <laughs> he saw it on a train and it just hit him. And he said, that's exactly what presupposing he, God he means. Saw the th- he saw the, the little girl, actual girl trying hit to hit the her father. Yeah. See, there's playing a game, slapping away. He's like, that's it. Um, yeah. if, if you're going to say God does not exist, even for that predication to have meaning, God must exist. You can't yeah. predicate unless God exists, yeah. because that's the truth of Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like well, this might they might be able to do that if there's no mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. There is no supposition where there's no God, mm-hmm. because He must be. So that was Van Til's point yeah. over and over again. So let's play off the neutrality issue. Um, what does an if there's bias in everything an unbeliever sees in the world, if their default position is to view it. Uh, through colored glasses, all is yellow to the jaundiced eye. Uh, what does an unbeliever know that is true? Do they know anything that is true? Right. Is there common knowledge accessible to unbeliever and believer? Uh, or if the antithesis is true, well, you're either in Adam or in Christ, mm-hmm. does the unbeliever know nothing truly? Right. Well, how does Van Til resolve this tension? Yeah, and it's a difficult one. He says, I think it's an intro to systematic theology. He has a fine paragraph in there toward the beginning where he says, the knowledge situation for human beings is a difficulty um, because of the chaos of sin in our hearts. That, those are my words, not his. But he basically says, these are his words, 
all, all we can do is hem it in. We can set the fence as best we're able from biblical material and then try to understand it according to the boundaries that we've laid out. So what are those boundaries? I think um, we have to recognize, if I could go back to the uh, Acts 17 illustration where Epimenides says, in him we live and move and exist, um, would we say as Christians, Epimenides had that right when he wrote it? I've heard I've heard people say that. I've heard apologists say that. Um, Aquinas says that 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 Paul uses the philosophers because they got it half right. Van Til would say they got it completely wrong, and the reason they got it completely wrong again is because the referent of the statement is a false pagan god, and that makes the statement itself false. So, what did Epimenides know in that statement? He knew there had to be some sort of all-encompassing something. That would, that would allow for a reference point for meaning for everything else in the world. You know, the philosophers mm-hmm. were preoccupied most of the time with all the diversity in the world. Um, how, do, how do I relate to you? How do you relate to a tree? How do you relate to the things you eat? There's all this diversity that's happening in the world. And if it's all just chaos – then it's it's meaningless. How I relate to you makes no difference. I can hate you. I can not hate you. Um, all these kinds of things. And the philosophers knew that there had to be a reference somewhere mm. that poured some sort of meaning into the diversity in the world. And for them, that was a, a unifying something. So Van Til talks a lot about monism. And in the, in the pre-Socratics, you had a lot of monism. All is water. All is air. There's an mm. all is kind mm. of thing. What do they know when they're saying that? They know there has to be something. What's what's the force behind that has to be something? Mm-hmm. Well, the force is they know God, mm-hmm. and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. So what do they know? They know there's a universal something that has to bring everything together. Good for them. Mm-hmm. They always get wrong what it is. So that's why the knowledge situation can be a bit chaotic. Van Til likes to use the the illustration of borrowed capital. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in that, what he's – what he's helping us to see is, uh, you know, this statement can be abused, but I think it's correct. All truth is God's truth. Mm-hmm. So if it's true, it's God's. If they've got it, then they've taken it from mm-hmm. us, to Where, put it that way. Whereas a lot of Christians I've heard say all truth is true for everyone. Right. But I think what Van Til's helping us do is qualify. No, all truth is God's truth. That's right. And if they have it, they've borrowed it from us. They've borrowed it from us. They've broken the Eighth Commandment. They've stolen, and they need to repent for stealing. Exactly, yeah. And then keep the First Commandment and come and worship the true God. That's right. And and see, that's a good illustration because what Van Til's trying to help us see is that an unbeliever's life is replete with nothing but that theft. They're taking all Mm -hmm. of God's creation to Mm -hmm. themselves and saying, there is no God, I can do it Mm -hmm. myself. That's the rebellion. That's the depth of their rebellion. Uh, Francis Schaeffer has this great illustration. I forget where I read it, but he's he's talking to a man on a ship. They're on a a boat somewhere in a ship, and the man's a a craft materialist. Mm -hmm. And Schaeffer, you know, was just so good at Q&A and back and forth. And um, the man, uh, materialist, said at one point, uh, he said, I I think I'm going to have to retire. My wife's in the cabin. I'm going to go to bed. And and Schaefer said, before you go, could I just ask you this question? When you get to that cabin, is there any way, given what you've told me, that you can know that you love your wife? Now, that is a brilliant question because what Schaefer is showing is, as a materialist, if you have love, you took that from us. It mm-hmm. doesn't fit in your system. Mm-hmm. It won't fit in your system because mm-hmm. love is not material. Mm-hmm. And if you think you love your wife, then you've got our stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just a br- – that's Van yep. Til's approach. It's like yeah. how in the world – does an unbeliever survive in a marriage? 
Mm-hmm. Well, there's all kinds of, you know, practical things. Well, I love this guy, this girl. Um, we're, we said we'd be together, so we're going to be together. But but we know how that goes mm-hmm. uh, in the world. So, so all of that, uh, do they know that marriage is good? Yes, they do. But it's only good if it's organized mm-hmm. according to Genesis yeah. and not according to just a pragmatic. Yeah. So this is Van Til helping us see yeah. the rational, rational irrational. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, um, you know, you can't write a book on this is the way unbelieving knowledge always is mm-hmm. without, you know, as he says, hemming it in. You can set the boundaries. But in every individual situation, you're going to see differences mm-hmm. because suppression of the truth can't be total. Mm-hmm. I've used the illustration of a beach ball, people trying to hold that down, hold that down. Mm-hmm. But eventually you're going to have to let go. You're tired. The ball pops up. When the ball pops up, that's in him we live and move and exist. There's a universal out there somewhere. It's popped up, mm-hmm. but it's also wrong. It's suppression of the truth. So mm-hmm. all of that together, the unbelieving psyche is just a very complex thing. I mean, human beings are complex, but it's very complex once sin gets in the way. But I think it's a really helpful way to approach a conversation with an unbeliever mm-hmm. um, is to show them this inconsistency that they are holding to standards that are actually Christian standards. Yeah pretending they're not and trying to attack Christianity with them. Yep. Remember here in an illustration once, you, you want to crash my car, but you have to get inside the car and drive it into the tree to crash it. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm an Old Testament professor here. And so one of the things we deal with in Joshua is the, the conquest and the genocide. Mm-hmm. Look at this, you know, ethnic genocide going on. And one of the things, things I teach the students is when you're talking to the non-Christian who has a problem with it, who's an atheist or a naturalist or a materialist, say to them, well, why do you even have a problem with this? Right. Yeah. Well, why is this ethically wrong? Yeah. Uh, why do you care about the young women and children back thousands of years ago? You've borrowed from the Christian worldview to even care for them, to yep. even think it's wrong. Yeah. You've sort of climbed up the ladder of the Ten Commandments, kicked away the ladder, and then start pointing your finger at exactly. us. Exactly. As, yep. as I've heard illustrated. That's it. I have a friend um, who's a retired a dentist, uh, uh, ethnically Jewish, but not religiously, and and uh, we're, we're friends, and we've we've had various chats on things. But par- part of it began a number of years ago um, when he was over in a foreign country, and he came back. And I asked him how his trip was, and he was, you know, pretty animated, and he sort of put his finger in my face and says, your God does not exist after all the suffering I saw from where I've been. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I've had people say things sort of like that before. So I, I just said to him, I said, what kind of God is it that I believe in that can't explain that? Could you tell me? Mm. And see what I was doing there, and he got quiet. We talked about two weeks later, but that was the end of the conversation. But the point was, how do you know so much about my God that mm. he can't mm. explain what's going on? That's the epistemological question, and mm. I forced it on him, and he didn't have an answer. Mm. So that gave me the chance a couple weeks later when he called, and he asked me, what do you – so I said, well, that's why that's why I asked you the question. Mm. What I believe is revealed to me, mm. so I don't believe it because I'm smarter. I don't believe it because mm. I'm not Jewish. I believe it because – this is what God has said, and here's what he said. Yeah. So then we began to talk about evil mm-hmm. and suffering, and what that does is take you right to the cross. Mm-hmm. God has a s- solution for this. Yeah. So that suffering, yeah, guess mm-hmm. what? We all deserve it because we hate him in our heart of hearts, but there's a way out. Mm-hmm. And it had and it had to be God who provided the way out because we can't do it. Yeah. We had a nice conversation. So Van Til talks about the point of contact. Right. And he has a very clear creator creature distinction, which is fundamental to his uh, whole perspective. 
But his point is there's still a point of contact between creatures. You're either in Adam or in Christ, but be precisely because you're a creature of God, you have knowledge of God. You suppress it, but you have that right. knowledge, and that works for our point of contact. But let me tease this out a bit, and you can see what you think of what I'm going to say. In that case, precisely because we're all made in the image of God and we all have knowledge of God, there is no such thing then as an entirely pagan, atheistic worldview. Right. There cannot, it cannot exist in which a nope. universe exists where there is a God. There's always a borrowing at some level. Has is that be. fair enough? So the, yes. the, the unbeliever is never a consistent atheist, consistent no. um, naturalist, materialist. At, there's, there's some point in their worldview where they're borrowing. Islam's borrowing the yes. idea of uh, the unity of God. There's one God. Right. Uh, they're borrowing that. Hinduism's borrowing some aspect of, right. of the Christian worldview. Yeah. Uh, is, is that really, am I getting that right with yeah. until that there's no purely secular worldview? Right. Everyone's religious. Yeah, exactly. And see, um, the point of contact is so important in Van Til. Um, the, the story, true story of when he came in to begin, begin to lecture at one point, and a student raised his hand and said, we were supposed to have a midterm exam today, and Van Til had forgotten. So he turned around and wrote on the board, on Knutfungspunkt, which is the German for point of contact. And he said, write on that for an hour. So it's important to him, um, on Knutfungspunkt. What is, what is the point of contact? Um, it is the knowledge of God that all people have and the way in which that's going to manifest itself in people's lives. So, again, um, to your question, if Christianity is true, not just in my brain, but true objectively, by definition, anything and everything opposing it is false by definition. I don't even have to know what it, what is opposing it at this point. I just have to know if it opposes Christianity, by definition, it's going to be false. Now, if it's false – it can't be true. That's obvious. And if it's not true, it can't be consistent. How can anything false be a consistent worldview? It's not possible because false means it doesn't comport with the way the world is, including the way God is, of course. So that means there's not going to be, you know, every philosophy has an ism. And they try to wrap things up by way of an ism. Herman Doiverd, I think, rightly called uh, almost every ism an idol. It's just an idol that philosophers build, and I think that's just about right. But every every ism is meant to to, to say, I'm complete here, and I've done it. And then philosophers come along and say, no, you've missed something, missed something big, so we're going to have to go here. Mm -hmm. So even philosophers will tell you they've not been able to wrap things up mm -hmm. in a complete coherent system. And that's mm -hmm. what Van Til is saying. Mm -hmm. Don't ever think that someone who's an unbeliever – is living in any kind of consistent way. Everything that they're doing is dependent on who God is, what he's done mm -hmm. in the world, and what he's said. And they're having to take some of that. Again, mm -hmm. back to the love mm -hmm. with the materialist. They have mm -hmm. to take some of that in order to even live in the world mm -hmm. that God has made. Mm -hmm. There's no possibility it could be consistent outside of who God is. And therefore can't be true. Can't be true. Um, and let me press that a bit further. <clears throat> if it can't be true, it can't be good for the world. Right. So therefore, only Christianity is good for the world. Yes. As Christians, we're not trying to say in a pluralistic society, we just want a seat at the table, please. Right. We just want to be one of many religions. Right. And all religions are good for the world. Right. So, you know, I heard of a Harvard study recently that did a survey on uh, religion and spirituality is good for families, marriage, community, good for your mental health. And as I looked at it and I read the statistics, I thought um, they've 
began with a confused definition of religion as spirituality. Mm -hmm. According to Paul, we're all spiritual. Right. You know, Paul in Athens says, I see that you're a very spiritual people. exactly. And I think that's true of secularism. Secularists are very spiritual. Yes. It's just a different religion. Right. But still a religion. And so this idea that religion and spirituality is good for the world, good for families, marriages, communities, and Christians are retweeting this saying, isn't this, look, look, it's right. religion's good for the world. Yeah. Yeah. What would Van Til say to that? How would he <laughs> respond to that? He, he would not be happy. Um, <laughs> so when, when Paul's talking about suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, part of what, what that means, he says, is you worship and you serve something created rather than the creature who is blessed forever. Um, you worship and you serve. And so Calvin says what, what separates human beings from everything else in creation is we must worship something. We are worshipers. And he also says our hearts are idol factories. So we're making idols in suppression of the truth. Any religion that's not Christianity, any belief that's opposed to Christianity is a religious belief that people attach themselves to and without which they think they're not really able to have meaning in their own lives. So it's not that religion is good. See, this is more this is more borrowed capital. It's that Christianity is good. And some perversions of religion on a relative scale are better than others. So better to be in a communal religion than to be in a cannibalistic religion because mm-hmm. you're not eating each other. Mm-hmm. But why is that better? It's because Christianity is true. Mm-hmm. It's because only in Christianity do you have true dignity for all people because they're made in the image of God. And so you understand that there's a value to all people, even as people who are depraved and sinful. And so Van Til would, would say um, that there's no possibility that other religions can offer even remotely what Christianity gives you because only Christianity is true. And those other religions exist because Christianity is what it is. And if any good does come from those religions, it's borrowed capital. It's all borrowed it's, capital. It's nothing in that religion. So the idea of trying to get Christians and Muslims together to sort of work together in community, you know, reconcile. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, there's a place for dialogue sitting around. Let right. me understand where you're coming from. Here's where I'm coming from. But this idea of, you know, the, I think increasingly even in the missionary context, there's the pressure as a religion, a Christian religion, to just have yeah. a seat at the table right. and be seen to be peaceful and amenable yeah. with other religions. And of course, it's for me, it's the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. You want to teach Christians in any culture, <clears throat> in any part of the world, be be a good neighbor to right. your Muslim, yes. Hindu friend. Right. But we don't need to all sit around a table and pretend that we're all just one religion among many no. that's all contributing to the good of the world. That's right. Uh, I'm thinking exactly. of a quote by Machen where he said, "Any a Christianity that is tolerant of any other religion is no Christianity at all. Right. Yeah. And that's really Van Til in essence as it well, is. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely is. Like you said, we, we tolerate it in our culture and in our society because we have to, but we don't tolerate it in the sense that we want to merge it together. You know, the Roman Catholic Catechism says that Muslims and, and Catholics adore the same God. Hmm. A, a, Christians should never say that. Mm-hmm. Their God has no Jesus. Their God has no Holy Spirit. I don't think Muslims would say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's just not possible to have this oneist kind of God mm-hmm. and to have the triune God and to have those merge. Mm-hmm. They are antithetically opposed. Mm-hmm. The reason the Muslims have the one God is because it's borrowed capital. They've taken it from bits of Scripture. Yeah. Um, but it's not the God who is Father of our Lord Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit as well. So th- there's no way to merge those t- those mm-hmm. two. I'm going to read a quote by Plantiga. He says, perhaps Calvin 
means only what we have already noted. One who doesn't know God fails to know the most important truth about anything else. He may mean to go even further, however. Perhaps he means to say that those who don't know God suffer much wider-ranging cognitive deprivation and, in fact, don't really have any knowledge at all. This view is at any rate attributed, rightly or wrongly, to some of Calvin's followers. For example, Cornelius Van Til. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually had a, a little interaction with planning on that. Um, and I, I think, you know, this has been one of the things that's been difficult for some people to read. Van Til will say, you know, when he's trying to make his point with a punctuation, he'll say the unbeliever can't know anything. Um, how do you define knowledge? Um, when, when Epimenides says in him, we live and move and exist, what does he know? He knows there's some sort of universal that needs to bring meaning to everything. So is that knowing something? Well, of course it is, but he thinks it's Zeus. Is that knowing something? No, he's just, he's just canceled what he, what he knew. So Bentil has a different understanding of knowledge. Um, Hendrick Stoker in his article in Jerusalem and Athens talks about, he has this, uh, way of putting it. He's a, he's a flaw. He was a philosopher of science. And, uh, he talked about analytical and contextual meaning moments. And all he meant by that was his, his illustration is a two is a two and can be understood as the number two, but it really has no meaning apart from the one and the three and the four and on it goes. So to, un- to understand what a two is properly, you've got to have the number system. It can't just sit there by itself mm. and be understood properly. That's Van Til's way of understanding knowledge. Of course, the unbeliever says there's a tree, and I say there's a tree, and we know there's a tree. But as we've as we've said, the way he's going to bring that into his own rational faculty and his own heart mm. is in suppression of the God who makes that tree and sustains it, and who made that person and sustains him, and who and and uh, that person is accountable to repent and to believe. All of those things come into the knowledge situation. Mm. So for, for planning and many philosophers, oftentimes knowledge is just a data bit or, or a proposition in a mind. And so if my mm. proposition, same as your proposition, we both know and we know truly. For Van Til, knowledge has much more of an ethical, moral component, mm. not just an intellectual epistemological. So that's what he's trying to get at mm-hmm. there when he talks about it. He even uses this phrase that makes people just, you know, livid. He'll talk about false knowledge. You know, people uh-huh. have written, there can't be such a thing as false knowledge. Yeah. Well, there kind of can be in him we yeah. live and move and exist is kind of an example yeah. of false knowledge. And just to summarize this point, really what Van Til's getting at is if you don't believe in Christianity as true, you can't believe in, you can't have true knowledge of anything else. That's right. Yeah, the only can't. true knowledge exists in Christianity, that right. in, in, the, in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yep. unless you're in fellowship with him. Uh, the way I describe it to students is you go into the laboratory to do your scientific research and you switch the light off when you walk in. Yeah. And there's common grace light coming in under the door, yeah. giving you a wee bit of insight. So scientists can say some things that are in a right. commas true, yep. but they don't really get it yeah. because they switched the light off yeah. when they went in. Exactly. C.S. Yeah. Lewis's great quote, you know, I, I believe in the sun, not, 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 not simply because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. If yeah. you don't see the world through the eyes and spectacles of scripture, you've got a wrong view of the world, no matter how many right things you might say on the surface. Mm. Yeah. Scott, fascinating. I could keep talking about this and uh, maybe we can do that ourselves in a pub yep. sometime. Good. But uh, thanks very much for joining us. These Welcome. have been three very stimulating episodes on Cornelius Van Til. And uh, just to remind you about the giveaway, The Christian Theory of Knowledge by Cornelius Van Til, newly published by Westminster Seminary Press. Uh, Go to wtsbooks.com forward slash afterward and enter for the free giveaway. There's a bunch of them being given away, so don't miss out on it. 
Thanks for joining us.